Welcome to the Modern Spirituality Show. I'm Ben Decker, and I'm super excited today because we're going to be talking about um, epidemiology. Do you even know what epidemiology is? I actually didn't. I had to look it up, and I'm super interested in the way that science, research, and policy can work together and and you know me, all those things are directly connected to spirituality. So I'm super excited to explore that with none other than Flojean Cofer, PhD, MPH. Uh, she's an epidemiologist. She's the senior director of policy for public health advocates. She manages a team of staff, including um, leading health. <laughs> she manages a team of staff leading health equity initiatives. Focus on California state policy and public health emergency preparedness. She helped create the Sacramento Sister Circle Voter Guide in partnership with the Sacramento chapter of Black Women Organized for Political Action. She co-hosted the Sacramento political podcast, Voices River City. She was awarded the Young Professional of the Year Award. I'm going to say 20 other things. Look, check out the show notes. There, this is a really, really accomplished person. Uh, I I can't wait for you to meet her. Flo Jean, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Ben. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're super accomplished. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's a little Look, embarrassing. <laughs> I, I had to I had to stop. There was a certain list of things that I discovered when I was learning about your work. And then I trimmed it down to this really concise list. And then when I was going over it, I was like, this is still really long. It's like this long list of achievements. The thing that I really respect with all of that is the follow through. I appreciate that. It's like swing, hit, right? Yeah. Then you hit it, you got to run, baby. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So great work you're doing. Thank you again for being here. Thank you for having me, truly. It's a pleasure to be on the show, and I'm excited to talk today. This is going to be a fun conversation. Okay, so tell me a little bit about epidemiology. Let's start there. I can give you, it is the the study of the distribution, determinants, and conditions of the spread of disease in human populations, which is a fancy way of saying we study why people get sick and what we can do about it. And so... I came to epidemiology because at the heart of it, I am a scientist. I'm also incredibly curious. And so I wanted to better understand the patterns that I was seeing in the world. The, the, I think the place where I really became curious was my mother is a public school teacher. And at some point she was reviewing scholarship applications for some organization and I, so we had all of these, you know, essays that these high school students had written and, you know, high school essays kind of have a, a form to them, right? Like people write about kind of the similar things, but it just so happened that this was a scholarship that was largely targeting like first time um, college students. And so many of them were black and Latino. And I was just astonished by the number of people who talked about a parent dying in their essays, because that means they haven't even reached 18 and a parent had died. And I think it stood out for me because my dad died when I was 11 of congestive heart failure. And so I think that was one of the first places where I was like, why is this so common that I'm seeing this theme? And granted, again, you know, 
essays, right? There's a certain form to them. People talk about, you know, overcoming challenges and whatever, but that's a challenge that most high school students shouldn't have experienced because your parents shouldn't be at the age where they're passing away in mass. And so it was kind of the first time that I was really better understanding life expectancy and what a shortened life expectancy because of health disparities looks like. And I think I was in college at the time and a very cute, confused college student majoring in chemistry and double majoring in women's studies and minoring in math and just collecting all of these things that I was interested in and having no clue how I was going to put them together. And so it, it really helped me kind of solidify, like, I want to better understand these patterns that we're seeing and what we can do to disrupt them. Wow. And so, I mean, you've done a lot. You've you've created, you had a political podcast. Um, you you created the uh what what is it called? Sacred the Sacramento Sister uh Circle Voter Guide. Yes. With the Sacramento chapter of the Black Women Organized for Political Action. These are these are really, you know, a lot of times people will get into uh politics or activism because they're inspired by one thing or another. Um, and it can it can be something where we find a lot of passion. There's a current event, something that's happening in the world, and and we're really excited about it. So we're doing a lot of different things. We're, we're and there's a burnout. There's like that initial initial uh, activism, excitement, enthusiasm, enthusiasm, burnout cycle. Um, a lot of times we're not successful in everything that we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And that can be, you know, demoralizing and things like that. And so so that's why when I look at what you've done, the follow through is amazing. So so like the that place where you recognize uh, the commonality of, you know, the the discussion you, you were sharing around uh, life expectancy, the realization that you had around it, and then taking that into and, and infusing it into the next chapters exploration now. I mean, what what you guys are doing with public health advocates is like the perfect actualization of that years ago intention, you know? It's pretty amazing. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing at Public Health Advocates? Absolutely. So, well, first, I want to show you who Public Health Advocates is for those who are not aware. We are a almost 25-year-old policy advocacy organization. We were founded in um, November of 1999, and we essentially work on trying to change the environment that we live in, but not just from an environmental health perspective, but all of the places that we we live, work, play, pray, um, sleep, eat, the places where we exist. And we understand that they have an impact on our health. And so we're always looking at what are the various systems, what are the various institutions that exist within our environments, and how are they playing a role in what we see in health outcomes? So originally, our organization focused a lot on aspects of the built environment, so the ways in which we design cities and, and, you know, and locations and how that impacts our health, how that impacts how we use the space, so whether or not we walk, whether or not we drive, whether or not we're able to access public transportation, who's able to maneuver in those spaces. Um, I'm sure you've, you've you've been in you know places that didn't have sidewalks and you think to yourself, so this is clearly an indication that I'm supposed to be driving here, right? Or that don't have recessed curbs. So it's very clear that somebody who maybe is using mobility assistive devices isn't going to be able to navigate from one space to another, right? So how we build a place is often 
shaping how we use a place. And so better understanding how those patterns then impact our health. We also were focused on the things that we eat, right? As part of the built environment. So where are grocery stores located and how are they laid out and what do they have offering? Um, and, and, and also how do our workspaces play into this? What are the, what's in the vending machine? What are the food availability? Um, what are the, the things that are shaping our choices? And just better understanding how we can make shifts in those to be able to change the patterns that we see because so many of our our, our decisions are based on what's presented to us and how it's presented to us. And we think we're making an overall choice, but really we're choosing based on how it's been designed for us. So that was a lot of the work that we did um, in the early days. We are the organization um, with our partners that's responsible for you having calories on your, me- on your uh, menus when you go out to eat. And we also got soda and junk food out of schools. And so a lot of our our claims to fame were really like, how do we shape this environment so that the next generation of people have better information and their choices are more health promoting instead of deleting from, you know, from from the aspects of our health that are incredibly important to maintain our well-being. And then we started recognizing that while that was really big and important, we also needed to think about, you know, trauma and we needed to think about some of the other ways that safety was not being created in our communities. And so we began to branch out, not abandoning those initial, you know, investments in parks and in, you know, in changing the built environment and safe routes to school and all of those things, but also wanting to expand it to think about, you know, how do we address some of the the other challenges in our communities? And so some of the work that we have now going is a first response transformation campaign that is looking at our 911 system and saying, It was set up when people primarily called about house fires, and we have done a great job at prevention and preventing house fires, Um, not so much wildfires, but certainly house fires. And so now, you know, what what do the call, what does the call volume look like? What's needed and how can we make sure that our responses are appropriate based on what's needed? Uh, We're also working on, we have an initiative called California COVID Justice, which was started in response to the, the pandemic and really thinking about how do we not only recover and repair the harms that that took place during the pandemic, but also how do we take some of these lessons and get ourselves even better than we were before we entered the pandemic because we know there were so many challenges there. And so we're really, really still focusing on and not trying not to forget just because the transmission rates have gone down and the death rate has gone down because we have the vaccine, but really thinking about the other things that we need to make our communities whole and to respond to the, the immense trauma that we all experienced together for a series of years. We also have, you know, our state policy portfolio, which is one of our longest running um, programs in the organization, where we're interfacing with our state legislature and introducing and supporting or or opposing bills uh, that we think are in the best interest of our communities. And so those are some of the things that I'm directly involved in, uh, in our organization, but I've also been involved in our All Children Thrive initiative, which is working with cities to prevent childhood trauma. And uh, and so I'm, I'm just really, you know, excited to be able to talk about so much of this this great work that we're doing is helping to transform the way that we live our lives here in California. Love that. Okay. So I have a question that you, you said a lot of different things. So there's a thousand questions that came up. <laughs> uh, first of all, it all sounds like really great work. Um, does this, does it feel like this is um, spiritual to you? This public Absolutely. health? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because ultimately at the core of it is 
our understanding of what hum- who, who human beings are and what, um, you know, our responsibility is to one another. And so I think this really gets into our core moral philosophies and our values. And there are, you know, I, I describe myself as an anti-capitalist um, because I really think that, that the idea that we would prioritize um, profits over people is, 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 it's morally, you know, offensive to me. Um, I really do believe that we all have a, a, a core set of human rights. Among them is housing. Um, housing is a human right. Healthcare is a human right. And so I don't think any of those things should be denied to someone because of their employment or because of their immigration status or because of their age or because of disability or because of any other you know factors that we could come up with. I think that is just something that all humans should be entitled to. Um, and so be, because I think that's a human right, a lot of the work that we do feels very much like I am defending um, our right as humans to be able to have our core needs met um, and really fighting against, you know, forces that say that if you don't have a job, you don't, you lose your health care. Um, or if you don't have, you know, an income, you don't have a place to live. And so for me, it does feel spiritual. It feels like a, a spiritual quest and journey to be able to connect with those core parts of, of who we are um, and, and ultimately what we deserve as we're on this journey. So when you when you look at all of the things that you've accomplished so far and the different initiatives, there's this huge diversity of initiatives that you're describing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if we were to look at them one by one, we could identify uh, places that different spiritual leaders of all different religions and traditions and, and cultures um, would affirm the spiritual impulse behind it. You know, like you're saying the affirmation of, the divine nature of every living person, um, making sure that they have basic rights that would be granted by nature or or therefore granted by, you know, just by virtue of the fact that we're living, all all people are created equal. Um, those are these are like universal spiritual principles. You know, each one we could there could be a whole sermon on each one yes. on each topic, you know, which so I think that's really cool. And I think that um uh, well, I think that what's interesting to me is like, so, so often, you know, maybe some of the people listening to this, we've been able to be a part of one or two things, um, or, or sometimes zero things, or sometimes three or four things, uh, where we've been able to see some kind of change or some kind of social justice, uh, you know, some kind of positive result. I think it's more common that we've felt really disappointed. Mm-hmm. And what's it's one in what's happening and it and it can feel really uninspiring. Um, so I'm curious of all the many projects you've been a part of, what's one that you feel really proud of? What's one that felt like it was a total win for you? Yeah, I know that's a lot, but I mean, you know, I mean it's hard to pick because there are a lot of things that have really felt like wins. Um uh, so I, I think I'm going to pick two. I'm just going to cheat. Um, the first was at the very beginning of my career. So I came to California from um, the University of Michigan and I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And so I came here uh, for a fellowship with the California Department of Public Health. And when I was a fellow um, at the Department of Public Health, I didn't have health insurance. And this was before the Affordable Care Act was passed. And so I had to purchase health insurance on the private market and the plan that I could afford at the time um, 
did not include, uh, you know, birth control as part of the plan. And I was 23. And so I um, had to buy my birth control on the on the private market. And then um, fast forward to me having my first permanent job here in in California at the Department of Public Health. I did have health insurance at that time, but the Affordable Care Act at that point had just passed. And so I was on a team um, working to submit recommendations to the Institute of Medicine for what should be included, what specific services should be included for the preventive services for women. And these services would be included with no copays. And so one of the things that really got me on my journey to policy advocacy was that we submitted those those the recommendations and many of the things that we recommended were included. We actually were the only state to submit um, recommendations. And so, and it was nice to be able to kind of take what we know and translate it into what we do. And so one of those recommendations was to include birth control on plans with no copays. So now all the people who have a, an approved plan and are able to get their birth control without a copay, a copay that was, you know, one of our recommendations. Another was being able to have uh, preventive, you know, well women's services every year where you could get screenings and testings that were going to, again, no, no copay involved. Um, some of the maternity uh, uh, you know, benefits that were given in terms of breast pumps and other things that now you're able to get. Um, and even just, just what was included in some of the screenings and some of the follow-up care for, um, for pregnancy and childbirth, that was all included in our recommendations. And so it gave me an insight into what was possible because I'm an epidemiologist and I thought I was going to mostly be on the research and, you know, analytic side. And that was the first taste of, wow, I'd like to be on the translation side. I'd like to be able to take what we know and translate it into what we do. Um, And it was nice to be able to kind of see that through my own experience um, several years before to being able to actually um, see us, you know, actually have that benefit and have people I know be able to access that benefit and being able to access it myself. So that um, that is one of the things that I'm really you know proud to have been a part of. It it really was a moment in history, and to think back on a time when people were purchasing approved healthcare care plans that didn't include birth control, and now that's that's not a thing is really nice. Um, another one that I would say um, with public health advocates, mm-hmm. I just have to say that is awesome. <laughs> yeah, Amazing. you know it's it's crazy because you think about it, and it's almost like of course. Of course, it should be that way. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't. It was not. You it know, absolutely so, was not. So that makes that's really really cool. That's that's super inspiring. You know the there's a there's this legislative mistranslation. It's like something doesn't make its way all the way into the policy conversation where um, this you know the entire everything related to women's health is is health and it's treated like it's a separate category it's like oh no no we can't give out tampons we can only give out toilet paper we can't give out um birth control we can only give out uh the different kinds of pharmaceuticals that we can't give out um you know and it's like uh it's it's almost crazy that we have to one by one uh articulate Actually, this is a regular old right, you know, Yes. Um, mm-hmm. and it should be included, but it's really amazing that you um, are doing it. And it's just like, I want to just honor that follow through, especially if that was the beginning of what you were doing. Like, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was it was really big and it was really exciting, you know, for me to be 
you know, this new epidemiologist with my newly minted PhD, you know, writing up these recommendations and being able to see how in, you know, real time they're being included in in what is now, you know, a federal health benefit. Like, that's cool. Um, that's so- a big fucking deal. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's epic. That's yeah. such a big deal. That is really, really epic. And just like, thank you on behalf of all the, all my sisters out there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. So, what's the other one? What's the other big win you had? So, locked in? so the uh, the other one, um, what you know, I, I think is a big win, and I mean, there, like I said, there are so many. So I, I'm, I'm almost hesitant to, you so know, like, like, like I said, I'm such a winner. I win all the time. Like you were saying, Ben, I have. I a... mean, we also lose a lot. Like, so there, there <laughs> is a conversation to be had about like. You know, right. a lot of these wins don't happen immediately, right? They are things that we have to fight for and push for for so long. I mean, I think about, you know, when I when I was, you know, 12 and 13 and watching, you know, Hillary Clinton and others fighting for, you know, a public option and the right in healthcare and this is the mid 90s, right? So like just being able to to recognize that like these fights take some time. And so we talk about the wins, right? And su- and success has many parents, but failure is an orphan. So I also want to just acknowledge that like there are lots of ways along the way that um that we people have been fighting for these things. And so if you happen to be there when the straw finally, you know, breaks um and and you get the the outcome you want, it's easy to be able to tell this hero's journey. But there were points along the time where you're like this is never going to happen, right? Um and and so that's also part of these stories. Um I think another, you know, big big win um that that we've been a part of um well, there are a couple, right? One, um, I think that that's incredibly important is uh, being able to get the diabetes prevention program funded in Medi-Cal. Um, Public Health Advocates was a part in 2016 of um, this report uh, that we were able to publish with the California Endowment um, and several other uh, partners looking at the number of people in California who had diabetes or pre-diabetes, which is the risk factor for diabetes. It means your glucose is elevated, but not quite to the level yet where you're diagnosed, but it's above normal. Um, And basically it was over half of Californians either had diabetes or had prediabetes, which is pretty scary when you think about prediabetes means that 47% 47% had prediabetes, which means that in the next five years, if there's no intervention, a good number of those folks are going to have diabetes. And when you look at the number of people who, you know, who are insured in various ways, there's going to be a big healthcare cost, you know, close to $8,000 extra a year for each person who's diagnosed. And so thankfully, we were able to use these data, the data for each and every legislative, um, you know, district, and be able to show what the numbers look like and what was happening statewide to convince the legislature that they should vote to include the diabetes prevention program in Medi-Cal. And we were the first state in the country to do that. And so that meant that people across the state of California had access to a an evidence-based program that actually was shown to be able to reduce the risk of people converting and actually keep them from, from developing diabetes. And so that was a big deal because it meant that people who were in Medi-Cal, right, which are, are low-income or, dis- or disabled, you know, um, fellow Californians were able to access that program in addition to people on Medicare because it did become a, a federal uh, 
federally approved benefit. And then also many of the um, the private plans were also included in the program. So it really was filling in this major gap in coverage and allowing people to be able to have this preventive um, service so that we weren't just waiting until people get diabetes and then throwing, you know, <laughs> the Cadillac of services at them, but actually investing in prevention. And so that was really cool, both conceptually, like, wow, we get it. It's better to prevent than it is to respond, but also because of the way that we were able to get it, it funded in, in Medi-Cal. I mean, that's huge. That's like literally like a miracle taking place. You know, uh, <laughs> diabetes runs in my family. I remember growing up, my grandma was always refilling her insulin prescription. Uh, it seemed like multiple times a day she had to do these injections. And um, my my I have four brothers. My youngest brother, our, the baby in the family, he is also diabetic. And he's always got some kind of you know, conversation around the, you know, the entire treatment process, you know, they've got different things, you know, different ways that you can treat it. Um, but it's, it's really amazing to also see all this research that, that there's lots of different ways to prevent and treat um, diabetes. Treating diabetes also often looks like the same thing as preventing it, you know, mm -hmm. not, not with the actual, uh, injections of insulin or or things like that but there's a there's a nutritional and lifestyle component of things where we know that if someone has access to healthy living they can um you know actually take really good care of their bodies and be healthy and some of these conditions that we a lot of times think about are as chronic are uh actually you know there's something we can do about them especially if we are like you're discussing, uh, if we're able to get into the preventative process in time. Yes, so. exactly. Exactly. And and I, I mentioned those because those are some of the successes, but I also think it's important to talk about the in-progress work because so much of what we're working on right now has, has had some intermediate successes, but we haven't gotten there yet, right? Like we are in the process of working on really trying to make sure that if, not, not if, but when the next emergencies take place, wildfires or, you know, um, earthquakes, flood, major storms, um, even, you know, another pandemic or infectious disease that comes on that we are not caught, you know, functionally with our pants down the way we were this time, right? That we put things in place so that we are in a better position. And unfortunately, and that was one of the bills we introduced this year that um, died in, in the place that many bills in our state go to die, which is the Appropriations Committee, it's always the money, right? Um, <laughs> so, so that's an example of you know of one of the things that we're working on. That one day I hope we'll be able to look back and say, "Wow, we got it done," and now we're in a better position to plan for emergencies. But, but you know, we we weren't able, um, you know, to to be able to get that bill last year when it was um, when it was introduced um, to be able to work on that. And then this year we tried to get the nine one one data from all around the the state um, to be able to uh, be compiled by one of our UCs so that we would actually be able to analyze it and see what are the places that we need to beef up the system? What are places that we need to beef up response? What are some of the ways we maybe need to retrain responders? And that bill also died in appropriations. So 
there's work to be done in terms of us really being able to to refine and improve some of the systems that we're interfacing with on a regular basis as climate change and other things are causing us to have more emergencies. And also as we are, are rapidly understanding the role that 911 plays in our communities. And we're not quite there yet in terms of, of that. And I think another place that we have a lot of room to grow is how we address our unhoused community. And so while there have been some modest and I do mean very, very modest um, ways that, you know, that projects have been set up, et cetera. You know, I'm living in a place right now that has 10,000 people sleeping on the streets um, or without permanent housing. And that number is way bigger than it was just a few short years ago. So we are absolutely trending in the wrong direction. So tell me about what you guys are doing uh, in that direction with with the housing crisis. There's a, uh, a campaign. There's a yes. campaign. Yes. A video this close to unhoused. That's right. So, um, so the California COVID Justice um, Initiative has really been been working to respond to um, to the COVID pandemic. And one of the big challenges that came up was, of course, housing because so many people lost income for a long time because of the the COVID shutdowns. And then many of the businesses that were open didn't come back, right? So it wasn't just this temporary loss of income. It was like complete loss, you know, of certain industries, certain businesses. Um, And that recovery, you know, did not happen in the way. We're not going back to what we were. We're building a new new future. And so part of of what that meant is that a lot of people had their housing, their largest expense for most people, um, compromised. And so while there were some eviction moratoriums that were taking place during the pandemic, those ended in 2021. And so we have seen, you know, even more people really struggling to maintain their housing, especially if they haven't been, um, if they have not been able to, you know, to regain employment um, and regain income. And also because during the pandemic, one of the unfortunate things that happened was that in showing people that they didn't have to, you know, live where they worked and many people were able to work remotely, it also opened up opportunities for people with higher incomes to move to places with um, with a lower cost of housing. And given our proximity to the Bay Area, um, there was an influx of people moving here because housing was much more affordable. And for what you would have to have three roommates for in San Francisco, you could buy your own house in um, in a place like Sacramento. And so we saw um, Sacramento was the place with the highest increase in the country in housing prices during the pandemic. And so what that meant is that uh, a place where most people work in public service, you know, in some sort of, you know, governmental capacity where their incomes are not shifting um, rapidly, all of a sudden now the cost of living has shifted tremendously and wages are not pacing with it. And so many people who were even securely housed before the pandemic were in a worse situation and are are more overburdened by the cost of housing, which means one emergency, medical or otherwise, you know, one major expense, and now you're struggling to pay bills and at the risk of losing your housing. And so we have seen that happening here um, a lot. And and that's I think that's the big challenge that we're up against is the cost of living is going up and anything else that's, that's happening is layered on top of that, whether that's, you know, people having mental health challenges, whether that's, you know, substance use and abuse, any of those other things are layered on top of affordability. Right. Right. You know, and when you look from the from the angle of why substance abuse uh, happens from a psychopharmacological perspective, there's. Uh, the entire reality of a, what an addictive substance means. There's a certain kind of soothing that is being sought after. There's mm-hmm. no yep. um, something that 
one of my mentors says it's it sounds like a joke you know the way she says it but it's so true marianne williamson says um cash on hand has a stress relieving effect and it's like you know it's true when you when you know that your basic needs are going to be met the stress on the system reduces and um and we find that all of the different techniques uh for for supporting someone through the addiction recovery process are the same thing as these like soothing techniques of of making sure the the basic needs are met of the body yep it's like basic health so you're exactly right i completely agree with you you know there's uh, i i was in venice beach california and during 2020 there was a a huge influx of of unhoused neighbors popping up all over the place people were in great despair most of them and um there was a huge fight and conversation about why it's happening there's people saying oh it's it's a mental illness problem oh it's um it's a drug problem and while those were are things that people of all socioeconomic brackets deal with all rich people and poor people and everyone in between deals with addiction same with mental illness um but you're exactly right it's affordability for the basic basic mm -hmm. life uh you said a couple things that really struck me especially uh just the reality of the way you know real estate and housing changed uh during the pandemic and how wages haven't kept up mm -hmm. there's there's no way uh you know in, in costa rica we see there's something really interesting where these towns some some months out of the year rent is three times what it is the other months so yep. the rest of the year and the people who work here they don't get paid differently everything everything costs a lot more even for yep. them um but they don't get paid differently and yep. and i think it's really really great that you're uh bringing the awareness of that into the mainstream understanding i think that a lot of the ideas that you're talking about are definitely really common sense ideas for a good healthy society and um i think that the way you're articulating them is helping people understand what these issues are it, it's it's very clear that you understand them it's very clear that uh your very intelligent mind can say oh well this makes perfect sense here's you know here's the the solution or here's a solution or here's an option or here are here's some questions to ask um you know you're you're in a really unique position your mind and and what you've experienced and who you are you're actually a really unique person a really unique case and so it's a really special thing that you're you're directing your focus and attention and energy into these different areas uh, everyone listening, I definitely recommend you follow Dr. Flo. She's brilliant. You have so much to offer, so much to share. Um, can't wait to uh, follow and learn more about your campaign for Sacramento mayor, which is super exciting. Uh, can't wait to learn more about that. Can't wait to learn more about um, all of the different things Public Health Advocates is doing. So we're going to have all of those different links just for everyone's information. Uh, so you can explore more about Dr. Flo, Dr. Flo's worldview, perspective, work, all of the many, many accolades I didn't list at the beginning. Uh, super interesting. Definitely 
check it all out in the show notes. And thank you for being here so much, Dr. Flo. Thank you for all the work you do too. Thank you. You know, I'm I'm what I'm really um heartened by, you know, from a spirituality perspective is just how many people are um are naming this as their number one issue, right? They're naming that this is that that housing and homelessness. These are people who are securely housed, but are saying it and saying it from a compassionate perspective, not just a this is bothering me, I don't want to see it, but they're saying it's bothering me because it's it's stirring something in my spirit and I don't like to see people suffering and I think that this is wrong. And the thing I think that that you know our campaign this close to unhoused and others is trying to emphasize is that there actually are solutions to this. I know sometimes um, for those of you who maybe are West Wing fans, there's you know the scene of crime. G, I don't know uh, that that one of um, President Bartlett's opponents, you know, utters to him when he's he, when one of his um, Secret Service members is is um, is killed and you know in, in gun violence, um, and he's like crime. G, I don't know, and it's like we actually do know though. Um, so the idea that you're running for president and you don't know is you know uh, granted on the fictional West Wing, but still it, it's it's the and I think sometimes we pretend that we don't know what some of the, that these things haven't been studied, that we don't have entire universities and research centers that have been studying things like, like homelessness, that have been studying, you know, housing policy, that, that there are not ways that we could do something different. And I think part of our challenge sometimes is that we get so demoralized because sometimes people convince us that things are more complicated than they are. And sometimes it's not that complicated. It really is just as simple as the 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 solution to homelessness is in the word. People are less a home. We should fix that, right? And so when we're talking about, you know, protecting tenants and making sure that we have, you know, ways for people to be able to immediately have what they need, um, supporting people who are in encampments, making sure that we have safe ground, um, you know, and, and, and also providing housing for people at all levels, those are the ways that we do this. And they honestly are, you know, I mean, sometimes the things that we do to avoid doing that are costlier. So we can't say it's the money, right? They're less effective. So we can't say, well, this is the solution, right? And they're making the problems worse. So, I, you know, there there is this way that I just, I, I know sometimes we can feel so frustrated when we're not seeing the movement that we need, but I also want us to all feel inspired to get involved in some way, not just in helping our neighbors, which is incredibly important, especially given right now we're having a heat wave in Sacramento. And so if you have water, if you have, you know, ways to be able to share um, resources about cooling centers and all of that, please do. But it's even bigger than that because those are temporary solutions to long-term problems. And I just want to inspire everyone that these actually have solutions. We can put pressure on, on, you know, people to be able to, we can advocate for policy change that protects them and us and all of us, right? And taps into that core. And so if you're feeling disturbed by it, lean into that feeling because that disturbance in your spirit is is experiencing injustice, injustice by proxy or witnessing injustice and feeling uncomfortable with it is the, the need to move. When you feel uncomfortable, you shift in your chair, right? It, it's the feeling of something needs to change and we need to move. And now is our time to move. So I encourage you to follow this close to unhoused, um, to get involved in advocating for some of the remaining COVID relief dollars in your community to be spent in ways that are humane um, and getting involved long-term because our housing policy isn't just related to, to COVID. It goes it's so much deeper than that. And COVID just laid bare some of the challenges and in some ways made some of them worse. And so now is an opportunity for us to really make them better. Love that. We're here for it. Here for it. Love the work you're doing. 
And um, yeah, you heard you heard her. This close to unhoused. We'll have the link in there. Uh, and actually, if you go to this close to unhoused dot com, is it dot com or dot org? It's, it's in the, dot org. Dot org. Okay, cool. Yes. This close to unhoused dot org. And uh, if you go there, it actually will. There's a little tool on there where you can look up your local representatives. So I think that's super helpful. That's one of my favorite kinds of activist tools. Um, it's it's a free thing that everyone can do. It's a great way to exercise your civic duties. So uh, take a second, check that link out. Take the moment to look up your local representatives. Uh, there are some some suggestions for what what kinds of things you could say. They're on the website as well. And uh, yeah, hey, get that exercise in of practicing actually communicating with your representatives. That's a great place to start. Um, And thank you for making it so easy. And thank you for all the work you do. I could tell you're just super on it. You're like the Energizer Bunny. You must have a super, (laughs) super inspired team. Full schedule. That team is fantastic. Totally, (laughs) really fantastic. Literally nothing we do is not a team effort. And so a big shout out to, um, to April and Abigail and Holden and the rest of the public health advocates team, because we, we really are a team. Yeah. Great team. And, um, and love Holden, especially great guy. Uh, love all the work you guys are up to and so happy to be one small part of it. So thank you for that opportunity. Thank you, Ben, for having us on. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. We'll do it again sometime soon. Awesome. Hey, it's Ben Decker, and I just have to thank you again for listening to the Modern Spirituality Podcast. For information on anything mentioned here, you can check out the show notes below. You can also get in touch with me via twitter.com slash bendecker, instagram.com slash Benjamin W. Decker, or email me at bendecker at modernspiritualitypodcast.com. It really does mean so much to me that you're here with me on the modern spirituality journey. I'm genuinely super excited about what I've got planned for these next few episodes. So really make sure to subscribe to the Modern Spirituality Podcast so you can get in on what I've got coming up. And if this is resonating for you, if anything here helped or inspired or entertained you at all, please, please do rate this podcast and leave me a review. It means so much more than you might realize. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you again.